The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor and the author of The Queen. This is Hang Up and Listen for the week of June 1st, 2020. On this week's show, we're going to talk about how the sports world is reacting and how we're all reacting to the killing of George Floyd in Minnesota. As part of that conversation, we'll be joined by ESPN's Myron Medcalf to talk about college sports and who is and isn't speaking out about racial injustice. Coming to you today, as always, from my home in Washington, D.C., joining me from D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Don't say, as always, Josh, please. We can't do this forever. Uh, yeah, well, we're doing it now, and for, we're going to be doing it for a while, so get used to it. With us from Palo Alto, California, Slate staff writer, host of Slow Burn Season 3, Joel Anderson. What's up, Joel? What's up, fellas? Glad to be here. Glad to be with you, Joel, and you, Stefan, and looking forward to our conversation. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. George Floyd's life ended on Monday, May 25th, 2020. That's the day when a white police officer, Derek Chauvin, killed Floyd in Minneapolis by kneeling on his neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. Floyd's life began 46 years ago. He grew up in Houston, Texas. Joel is going to tell us uh, more about that later in the show. Steven Jackson, who went on to play in the NBA, met Floyd in Texas. Jackson called Floyd his twin, and he went to Minnesota to speak about his friend's death. Here's part of what Jackson had to say. To my white brothers, I love you. Every race here, I love you. Come on. But it comes to a point now where if you love me and you're not standing on the side of me, and your love don't mean shit. Say that. I'm starting here uh, with those words from Stephen Jackson because it can't be said enough that systemic racism is a problem created by and perpetuated by white people that Black people have suffered from and are suffering from and will continue to suffer from unless and until white people do something about it. And yet, it's too often left to Black people like Stephen Jackson and many others, whether athletes or anyone else, to advocate for their own humanity, to demand to be treated as people, or even sometimes just to be left alone. We can all see and hear and feel that this is an important moment, but so were the moments that followed the killings of Eric Garner and Flando Castile and Sandra Bland, and I could go on much longer here than in a just world I would be able to. So speaking as a white man, uh, the question now is whether something is going to change or if we're going to just keep talking about change. In the past and the present, Black athletes, Muhammad Ali, Colin Kaepernick, Stephen Jackson, Many others have taken the lead in asking that question and sometimes forcing us to answer it and sometimes not. Um, Joel, what have you been thinking about for the last week? I've been thinking a lot about how this reminds me of uh, Ferguson in Baltimore. You know, we really seem to be on the precipice of a national implosion, you know, because, you know, it's hard to look at those scenes from the streets all over the country where people are you know, clashing with police in the streets and not think that something bad and really scary is going to happen. I think of that every time I turn on the cable news or, you know, and I'm just like, oh man, how is this? I think that's the thing I'm always like, how is this going to end? And the reason I say that is because I'm really skeptical, really cynical, possibly pessimistic about the idea that this will lead to any larger systemic changes. So I fo- sort of focus on the moment at hand. And I'm like, well, God, I just hope that we can get out of this without anybody being killed in the streets, without, you know, a protest about police brutality becoming yet another example of police brutality, right? So I think that's what I've been thinking about all weekend. I just want people to be safe and to get out of this so that we can move forward. But I don't, 
take, you know, any sort of like lesson or sort of any like broader, I don't have any broad, many broader thoughts about this that I haven't already had in 2014 or 15, because I mean, that I know what this country is and I know what, you know, our fealty to, you know, the police state is, you know, I just tend to believe that we're going to talk a lot about institutional racism and people's feelings and standing side by side with people. And then in three or four months, whatever city, whatever jurisdiction you're in is going to, you know, approve a budget that increases, uh, you know, the police's share of the the, the local city budget. Um, so, yeah, I, maybe I, I wish I had more inspiring words or something that could really like beautifully wrap this up. But um, it's just a much more bleaker, darker, pedestrian view of all these things that have happened over the past week. So, Stefan, I, I mean, I don't know. I didn't give you a lot to feed off of there, but hopefully maybe you're more optimistic than I am about this. No, um, <laughs> not especially. You know, we've all been sort of depressed and upset and angered by what we've seen. And we probably should pivot it back to what we're here to talk about and talk about the role of sports and athletes and what we've seen over the last week and whether that has changed the way anyone's felt or what it says about the role that sports figures and leagues can play in this national conversation. And I think it has been pretty striking. I mean, the one thing that I keep thinking about is, of course, Colin Kaepernick. And it took a couple days, I think, for people to make the connection between this cop putting his knee on George Floyd's throat and Colin Kaepernick taking a knee. But but that is a very prominent image now. LeBron James tweeted it out uh, a couple days ago. Sally Jenkins in the Washington Post talked about how the NFL picked the wrong knee. Um, and it's no solace to, and it's no surprise to sit here and say Colin Kaepernick was right. Um, and Kaepernick also has been speaking out and also offering to pay for uh, the legal representation for people arrested in in Minnesota in protests. But it is a sort of stark reminder of just how right he was and how simple it would have been for the NFL to say, we support not just his right to exercise his his opinion and express his feelings, but we also support what he is talking about and how easy it would have been for the NFL to take a position that wasn't so cautious and, um, and, and, and marketable. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think one of the m- most striking statements that's come out of this came from the Miami Dolphins head coach, Brian Flores, who said, and this came out on like, you know, Miami Dolphins letterhead or whatever the Twitter equivalent is of letterhead. (laughs) I vividly remember the Colin Kaepernick conversations. Don't ever disrespect the flag was the phrase that I heard over and over again. This idea that players were kneeling in support of social justice was something some people couldn't wrap their head around. The outrage that I saw in the media and the anger I felt in some of my own private conversations caused me to sever a few longstanding friendships. I bring these situations up because I haven't seen the same outrage from people of influence when the conversation turns to Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and most recently George Floyd. Many people who broadcast their opinions on kneeling or on the hiring of minorities don't seem to have an opinion on the recent murders of these young black men and women. That's coming from an NFL head coach. issue Mm -hmm. there, obviously, is that there aren't a lot of NFL head coaches that look like Brian Flores. Um, It's very powerful to hear it's coming from him. It would be a lot more powerful, as he said, if this message was coming from Bill Belichick. Bill Belichick, good example. But, you know, Joel, you know, back to the, this question of kind of looking for the the bright spot here. Everybody wants to see, like, all right, how's how's everything gonna be better now? One thing that's diff- definitely different is that more people are speaking out and more white people are speaking out than did in 2014 and 2015. The reason to be cynical about that is that everybody now sees that it's safe. The NFL says, oh, other brands are putting out statements saying that we all stand together. Um, It would probably be worse if the NFL just sat there and didn't say anything, but is it that much better? Or do they simply see, like, this is the way that the wind is blowing? 
right now. And so if we're not going to stand out and stick out if we say, you know, we're all brothers and sisters in this moment. Well, yeah. And, and, and so actually over the weekend, I had to write something about, you know, police chiefs, for instance. This situation is even different for them because so many more of them than in the past have come out and said what we saw in the video of George Floyd's arrest and ultimate death was wrong. That's not what policing is. That is police brutality. That is, you know, they were basically seeming to say, well, hey, that guy's firing and later his, you know, um, you know his prosecution, he's, he's been charged with third degree murder and George Floyd's death, that that was okay and that that's what should happen, right? So like even the police chiefs, think that they what they saw was bad enough and that it demanded a statement. So, of course, the NFL and, you know, prominent sports figures could look at that and say, you know what, it's okay for us to say something right now. But I think the one thing, and I've, I've been talking about this with friends all weekend, that we've been missing here because they've said, you know, we're taking a stand, like we're We've got a problem with, you know, uh, you know, we want people to stand together. We have a problem with racism, so on and so forth. Nobody has mentioned police. None of these statements that have come out, nobody has ever said anything about police brutality, police abuse. They've just spoken more theoretically, more generally about racism and institutional racism and systemic racism as if these are things that just happen on their own, that they're part of the atmosphere and not things that are uh, actively um, promoted and furthered by the actions of people and the decisions they make, whether they're politically or in their everyday lives. Like institutional racism, systemic racism doesn't just happen, but it allows people to sort of hide in this like bigger, broader phenomenon and they don't have to take responsibility. And so that that's why I've like really been sort of skeptical and cynical because it wouldn't take anything for, you know, the Miami Dolphins or anybody else to say, hey, look, this is police brutality and it's wrong and it happens because of racist policing practices. And that's got to stop. And we're going to work within our communities to see what we can do to stop that and to make police departments more accountable. You haven't heard that. You've just heard... I stand with you. And as Martin Luther King said, you know, rides of the, vo- you know, the voice of the unheard or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, that's not, it, you know, that that's not a call to action. That is a call to cease action to, to so we can get past this. And so, like, while it is good for people to signal that what we saw in that video was wrong, it's not like they've said anything that would make me think that they're really committed to making sure that it doesn't happen again, if that makes any sense. Does that make does that make sense? It does make sense. And I think, Stefan, we've seen societally, but also in sports, this kind of conflation of the military and, and police, like um, whether it's with police kind of going through the streets with military equipment, whether it's we have to we're saluting the troops and also, you know, the first responders that are serving us in, in our communities. There's this kind of way that the NFL and think in particular has taken the league the lead but other leagues as well have really wrapped themselves in the flag but just this idea that there's a kind of bright line there that in order to be american and i think in a way to be kind of beyond criticism you have to say certain things about the military and about the police and i think that this is like a real kind of third rail and and something that for owners and commissioner that either don't want to piss off Donald Trump or actively support him, there's just like a line that won't be crossed here. The NFL and other leagues made institutional decisions, and it wasn't just after 9-11. It was before that, but certainly it has been heightened since 9-11. And they've made an institutional and a business decision to ally themselves with the military and with law enforcement and to make it seem as if supporting that is an inherent part of their business, of their day-to-day operations. And absent it, it is a sort of anti-American behavior. The leagues have boxed themselves into a position that they can't get out of. They are so locked in now and have been for the last 20 years, particularly, to jingoism and nationalism 
and false patriotism that now, when a lot of those ideals are looking to more and more people to be inherently suspect, Mm -hmm. the leagues really don't know where to go. So you end up with Roger Goodell issuing a statement saying the NFL family is greatly saddened by the tragic events across our country. And when he's called out by his own employees, people like Kenny Stills, the wide receiver for the Houston Texans, who said, save the bullshit, well, what is the NFL going to do? They double down further and talk about how they've done, they've poured all this money into, into social justice organizations in recent years. But it all still feels empty because we know it's empty. And we know because they were afraid of Donald Trump after, after Colin Kaepernick. And we know because they blackballed Colin Kaepernick and they denied him a job when it would have been perfectly easy, as I said earlier, for the league to just say, we support what he is doing. We don't deny his right to do it. And he belongs on the field because he is qualified to be on the field. And we've seen, we also saw former Clinton spokesman and former NFL communications uh, director Joe Lockhart write a piece for CNN admitting that the league did just that. Do you think that these leagues, I mean, can fool people? Like, do you think the NFL can fool anybody though? Because like, I, I, like we, we've talked about these statements, right? And we, Everybody kind of feels, oh, they're a little suspect. They're sort of lacking here. So who are these really for then? Like, do you, you know what I mean? Because I, I, it just doesn't, their actions have told the stories that they're not really invested in this sort of stuff. And like somebody like Eric Reed, right, has been fighting against the NFL since he got back into it um, about like the the lack of real passion or even resources into these social justice initiatives that they're putting money into. So like what, what do you even think these statements are for then? Or who are they for? Who do you, who are they convincing with this sort of stuff? I mean, I think they're for themselves. They're so that they can say that they that they said it. It's to check the box and be able to move on. I don't think they're trying to persuade anyone or convince anyone of anything. I think I guess if anything, it's a statement so that people can then say, "All right, we what are you complaining about? We already said that we don't support this." It's like you know, designed to be the minimally sufficient response to be able to move along and conduct the next kind of order of league business. But the NFL was saying that, you know, four years ago with Kaepernick. It wasn't that we don't support justice. We don't, it's not that we don't support the rights of, of, of black people. It's that Hey, you know, we support the flag and this was disrespectful to the flag because why they wrap themselves in it. And so four years later, I mentioned this Joe Lockhart column on CNN. He writes, I was wrong. Well, first he says that an executive from one team told him that they projected losing 20% of their season ticket holders if they signed Kaepernick and that this was a business risk that they somehow had quantified. Um, And he goes on to say, I was wrong. I think the teams were wrong for not signing him. Watching what's going on in Minnesota, I understand how badly wrong we were. Dude, if it took the killing of this black man (laughs) to make you realize that you were wrong, come on, who are you kidding? Well, yeah, and I mean, that's the thing, right? It's just that, yeah, this killing... I mean, there's no way that you can look at the Tamir Rice killing and think that that was anything other than an egregious injustice and horrible policing. And yet and still, they came out on the side of the argument that they did, right? And so, you know, for now, not that they, like, as you all mentioned, the wind is blowing in this direction after the George Floyd video gets out. It's like, well, what are you guys going to do about it? But for these statements, and, I, and that's why I was asking, like, who do you think these statements are for? Because... Nobody that was on the other side of the argument before is going to think this is sufficient. They're like, there's no way that they can that that they could actually believe that like releasing those statements that Colin Kaepernick is like, you know what? That's right, guys. It's over. You know what I mean? You're, so you, we're all good now. Yeah, we're all good now. And then well, the but, people but that Joel, back back to the point you were making before. Remember that one of the things that was used to quote unquote discredit Kaepernick is that he wore socks that had pigs on them, mm. and I think. Yeah. That's again back to your point about how the thing that um, when we're all like now in this having having the um, mythical national conversation about race that we're always having, the thing that we're not actually talking about is what we're allowed to say about 
the police and about policing and how policing looks so much different to you if you're um, black or a person of color than if you're a white person. And also like with the Kaepernick thing, it's it's just like, okay, even if even if I don't agree with this, let's agree. Like, okay, he's not a perfect spokesman. Steven Jackson, for many reasons, is not a perfect spokesman. But like, does it? Why does that matter? Who cares? Right. It's like, who? Uh, you know, and and another part of that of his press conference that you know we didn't include a clip from. He talks about Jackson does. You know that with George Floyd, there's going to be a tendency for people to talk about you know the negative things that that happened in in his his life and not the fact that he was just a human being who no matter um what does not deserve this to to happen to him and so it, it just feels like we're not capable of talking about the things that really matter and that are are really important um and that it always just gets back to oh this you know he did this thing that's a, that was offensive or like why mm-hmm. did he have to do it that way or oh I would have been okay with it if he had done this and, and not that it's all just just bullshit because people don't want to have the conversation that we should be having and it's all just excuses and one thing I've been thinking about too guys is that the breadth of the response by athletes and coaches and teams to George Floyd I mean it's obviously commensurate with the reaction of the of the general public and what we've seen in the streets but at the same time athletes aren't athleting right now and i think there's a connection to the lockdown and the coronavirus um all of these athletes are outside of their team facilities their home they're not training as much as they would they're not in the in their usual environments Mm -hmm. and i wonder whether that's giving them you know a, a bigger voice to be part of the conversation on social media. And we've seen everything from, you know, statements on Twitter to videos created by the tennis player, Francis Tiafo, um, with other players and coaches and administrators in us tennis, um, really moving video rackets down hands up with everybody putting their hands up soccer players in the one sport that is alive. And we're watching in Germany, we've seen several players take knees, or wear T-shirts that undershirts that say "Justice for George Floyd." The U.S. player Weston McKenney in the Bundesliga took a knee during their game over the weekend. So I think that just the environment has has helped mm-hmm. give athletes a voice that they know they're going to be heard because this is what they need to do right now. And there's you know they're not they're not working in their regular jobs. And to that point, I think that also explains in some ways the insufficient response from coaches and administrators because they don't have all these same you know, the the same administration, the same sort of structure that would help them and be able to feed them the lines that they need to be able to say immediately, right? And so mm-hmm. you kind of end up with this, as you call it, anodyne statements that really don't say much, but sort of check all these boxes. And we end up with, you know, where we were in the first place it was like, where you really stand on this? You know, you're able to just kind of get away uh, with saying I'm against racism, but not point to specific things that have created the conditions that you know, lead to racism and lead to the sorts of police brutality and police abuse deaths that we saw with George Floyd. So Bill Belichick doesn't know where to go, right? Um, he, he doesn't have the same sort of structure and the same protection that he would normally have as he was if he was in the the office every day and they were able to sort of talk this out. Um, and that's what, it, it, maybe that's why it seems insufficient. And, you know, I, I guess it kind of, I don't want to diminish the importance of these guys saying anything at all, because it is important to signal that there are some things that are so egregious and so unacceptable in society that it demands people to say that is wrong. And if that's all that they can give, then I guess we just have to live with that. It may not be enough for me, but it is important to just say it. And maybe that's, you know, maybe that's sort of the lesson of this, right? That we found an incident that was so bad that even, you know, Mike Leach had to retweet a um, Martin Luther King meme. And you do have, um, you know, whether Joe Burrow or Trevor Lawrence or Carson Wentz, you know, we can't say how heartfelt the statements were. They seem heartfelt and not written by Mm -hmm. publicists. All we can say is that this is different. We haven't seen, for instance, as, as many white athletes speaking out as we've seen now. And I guess it gets back to kind of minimum sufficient response. Like, I guess if I was uh, a teammate of one of these guys, I would at least, you know, 
it's it's meaningful. It's it's more meaningful than not saying anything. Mm-hmm. It feels like there's a shift happening here where you you really do need to speak up and that this is a time when you need to make clear which side you're on. And so those guys are are making it clear whether that translate how that translates when games start or how it translates into action, we don't know, but I think it is just worth at least marking that this is a moment when things are different. I want to circle back and finish up here by mentioning that, you know, you talked about, Joel, how none of these statements mention police brutality. Well, there is one that did, and that was the U.S. Women's National Soccer Team's oh, right. statement. And it'll be interesting to see because that league, the, the the professional league they play in, NWSL, is resuming before all the other major professional sports. They're going to run this closed tournament in Utah um, starting later this month. And these are athletes who have made their voices heard. And if they take some sort of collective action on the field, which is noteworthy and something that we're all going to be looking for, it's going to raise this question of, you know, what's Roger Goodell going to do if 75% of the league takes a knee in the fall, if they come back and start playing? Will there, or will taking a knee be co-opted by the establishment without acknowledging Kaepernick? Well, it was co-opted, remember, then that one week where like Jerry yeah, Jones Yeah, that one week where Jerry Jones, Jones did, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, but, but everyone saw through that. That fixed everything. Right. Yeah. I, and, and I'm glad you said that. We can end on that because UConn women's basketball also mentioned police brutality. And then we they're all following in the activism of like the Minnesota Lynx who protested this, you know, years ago, you know, and angered the Minnesota police department so much that they refused to work their games for a few days or something like that for a few games. So right. as with many things, the women were ahead of the men on a lot of this stuff. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. All right. I wanted to let you know that in this week's bonus segments, we'll be talking to Myron Medcalf of ESPN. We're about to talk to Myron in the segment coming up uh, about college sports and its reaction to George Floyd's death. Uh, Myron is in Minnesota. And so we're going to be hearing his perspective as somebody who has been, you know, living with George Floyd's killing for the last week. If you want to stick around and hear that, you should join Slate Plus. Slate.com slash Hangup Plus is the link, and it's only $35 for the first year. Please join and support us. Support the show. Slate.com slash Hangup Plus. In the days after George Floyd's death sent anti-police abuse protesters into the streets all across the country, there was a slow but steady release of publicly prepared statements from people in the sports world. While players and activists spoke forcefully about what happened in Minneapolis last week, the coaches, most of them old and white, were a lot more restrained. We heard from a number of white football coaches, including Alabama's Nick Saban, Texas's Tom Herman, Oklahoma State's Mike Gundy, and plenty of others. Of course, there were a lot more who said nothing at all, including, disappointingly enough, the head coaches of the teams at my alma mater, TCU. The collective silence was enough to catch the attention of North Carolina Central men's basketball head coach Lavelle Moten. In an interview for ESPN Radio on Sunday, Moten called it alarming and challenged other coaches to say and do more. It seems as if black lives matter to them whenever they can benefit from it, right? Whenever they're getting them a first down or, you know, catching a, a alley-oop or shooting a three or whatever. But when it's time for the humanity to speak up on behalf of those those student athletes, it's, it's, it's silence. It's cricket. The murdering of black Americans is too risky of an issue for you to stand up as a leader. Then who are they really playing for? Who are they really playing for? That's a good question. We've brought in the person who spoke to Moten uh, on the radio and for a story that he later wrote for ESPN.com. His name is Myron Medcalf, longtime college basketball writer for ESPN.com. He even lives 
in Minneapolis right now. We've been trying to get him on here a long time. So, Myron, thanks for joining us today. First of all, how did this conversation with Moten happen? You have a, a pretty good relationship with him, correct? Yeah. So, um, Moten and I have been tight for years. You know, he's just one of those guys, honestly, if you meet him, you just get cool with him. I mean, you just a guy that you just want to call, even if it's not about basketball. He just has a lot of insight on life. But this year, I spent a week with the team, North Carolina Central, HBCU. I rode the bus with the team for a week and did a whole story about that and really got to know him, his staff. I mean, they made me feel like family. Um, so we have these conversations all the time. This was just a conversation we happened to have on the radio. But these are things he's cared about and he's expressed that for years. And it's, you know, Joe, how it is. We talk about this stuff in private all the time. Right. But I feel like he felt like, you know what, it's time to say something in this moment. And there has certainly been a response in college sports since he said that. Um, there have been people who've released second statements. Chris Mack has put out another statement. Uh, John Calipari released a video, canceled his podcast show, asked for a moment of silence, wants to arrange a group of leaders to discuss the situation. So I think he made a mark. Let's talk about the the broader context here. And I think something that um, you know Moden was speaking about was just about college sports generally. You have these white older white coaches in men's basketball and football who are directly profiting off the work of young, uncompensated black men. And Moten is a black man at an HBCU who relates to his players in a different way than even somebody who's put out a good statement like a Chris Mack has. Um, how much do you feel like Moden was just kind of releasing, you know, his feelings about this bigger picture about college sports. Yeah, I think that definitely was an element of it just because it's impossible to look at what I see every time I go to a game and 99% of the time there are two white coaches and predominantly black players. It's impossible to not see that. And I mean, that's America in so many ways, you know, but I think the collegiate element where the idea is you're supposed to be leading young men and, uh, you know, there's this idea that you're helping these young men mature, it, you can't ignore some of these dynamics. And I think someone like Lavelle, and I don't want to speak for him, but he's confronted with these things every single day. And, and I think in moments like this, even the coaches who put out with statements, that's enough for their fan bases and supporters. He put out a statement on Twitter. He spoke up. Whereas I think what Lavelle was saying and what a lot of us are saying is it goes beyond a few tweets and an MLK quote. This is about how are you teaching and leading the young men who have given up all their other opportunities to trust you with these crucial years in their lives? What are you doing to relate to them? What are you doing that goes beyond how they assist your program, how they benefit you and the big salary you have? Do you care about who they are beyond this? And, and to me, any coach in America, if you're saying you care about them more than just the athletic elements, especially with black kids, you've got to admit that race is a component that you can't just look, look past. And I think that's what Lavelle was trying to uh, articulate. Um, and some coaches, like I said, have responded. And I do think it's important for coaches to stand up, but what next? And I think that's always the question we're left with in these situations. And part of the problem here, Myron, obviously, is who is coaching these young men and women of color in major sports? Um, about a tenth of FBS football coaches are black. And then in basketball, the numbers aren't much better. I mean, if you, you it's like 30% overall, I think, in D1, but you take out the HBCUs and then you move into the power conferences and you're down into like 13, 14%. And there are conferences that don't have a single black head coach. I mean, do you think that in addition to sort of putting out tweets and trying to push the conversation further, there's, there's a potential here for schools to recognize their failures here? I don't have that confidence in the collegiate landscape because I've been here too long to get fooled again. Uh, right. I would love to believe that this was sort of the thing that propels us into what you're speaking of. Hey, let's get more minorities, my opportunities. I've heard the same song too many times. It's clear, based on the numbers that you just said and, and mentioned, 
that America's presidents and athletic directors believe the best leader for their program is a white guy. There's no way to look beyond that because the numbers prove it. And that puts so many coaches in a difficult spot. How do you, as an African-American, prove that you belong? And I talk to so many Black coaches, and they tell the same story. How do I get in that room with that president or that athletic director to prove that I can lead this program? And then there are so many social challenges. We don't go to the same barbershop. We don't go to the same church. We don't have the same conversations. We're not watching the same TV shows. That makes it difficult to relate to an institution where the vast majority over 90% of these leaders, athletic directors and presidents are white. So now you're asking these guys to trust that you're capable and to step outside their comfort zones to give you an opportunity and give you a fair shake. And that just hasn't happened consistently. And I, I was just with a meeting uh, with, I believe it was, you know, 500 coaches around the country. Uh, many of them African-American, and our conversation quickly became this. How do we change it? And I'm always lost. But at the end of the day, if the NCAA doesn't have to meet some sort of a standard as to who gets interviewed, then these schools can escape by hiring these search firms, which are all white, to get the right candidate. And then when you go to them and say, what was the hiring process? Well, we gave that search firm our criteria, and then they came back with this particular candidate. Everybody's making excuses. And I don't know how you solve that. And I've been trying for so many years to figure it out. So, Martin, you mentioned you didn't want to be fooled again. And you were covering college basketball, obviously, in, you know, 2014, 2015, when we had, you know, uprisings around the country that we had not seen for, you know, 20, 25 years, right? What's different now in the response from coaches, college coaches, now that, you know, we didn't see back then. Cause I, you know, 2014, 2015, I don't remember hearing many statements from coaches then, nor do I remember much of a push for them to even say anything about what was going on uh, at that time. Yeah. I mean, that's a really good question. I think what's changed perhaps are the, the players and that these are players who lived through Ferguson and they saw that and they saw Philando and they saw Sandra Bland and they've seen so many things that Unlike you and me growing up when we did, they've seen these things in real time on social media. And they have these discussions in real time on social media. And I think you have more coaches who understand like that's the way you communicate to your players these days. Maybe a lot, maybe more so than 2014, 15, and perhaps feel like they have to say something so that that audience that really is glued to social media will believe that they they care. Now, what's changed about the true investment? I don't know the answer to that. I guess we'll see. But I feel like we've said that so many times. Um, a, a number of these statements are, let's call them what they are. They're statements that suggest, and I'm not saying that people are disingenuous, but they suggest you care and they suggest you're invested and they suggest that you think what happened to George Floyd in Minneapolis on Memorial Day and others like him were some really, really terrible incidents. But they also walk the line so that you don't get yourself into a dicey situation with some of your big supporters and boosters who might not have the same view. So, so many of these things feel manufactured to me. Like a bunch of people went into a room and said, how do we release this statement so that everybody's happy? And Joe, you and I know, if you're going to have conversations about race, you're going to make some people mad. There's no way to have a real conversation surrounding race and the things attached to race, police brutality, racism, racism systemic racism, uh, the achievement gap, all these things without making people upset. Right. So I'm curious going forward if there will be more coaches who are willing to make those kinds of statements, the ones where you take a side, the ones where you have to address these things you're seeing in front of you, not just today when it's convenient, but in the weeks and months that follow, that you make this a part of your curriculum and a part of your platform. College boosters, administrators, and coaches, not not quite known as the most progressive bunch of folks. Uh, sure. <laughs> <out there. laughs> sure, let's, I mean, well, here's what here's what Nick Saban said in his his statement. 
I mean, and you talk about anodyne and and walking a line. We are all part of this, and we must banish these types of injustices in not just our country, but our world. The ultimate future of our nation is in our hands, and like the teams I've been privileged to coach, we must depend on and respect each other no matter our differences. We must come together as a society and treat one another with respect and dignity. I mean, that doesn't say very much, frankly. Right. It, it, honestly, some of these statements sound like a line from Gladiator, like Russell Crowe, and he would be like in the... <laughs> In the in the Coliseum, and he would make a declaration. Like some of these sound sound like they sound like that, like like that's the audience they were imagining. And, and again, I understand these are big names, and everything they do is going to be some assistance. But I'm waiting to see some of the raw emotion that we have to deal with when these things happen. I'm yeah. waiting to see someone show me the tweets, the messaging that hasn't been through that filter. I want to know how you felt when you saw that video. That to me is real. I want to know what your immediate thoughts were and what you intend to do. That's real. And I'm not saying, again, these statements are fraudulent, but there's no way they're enough. And I think there are a lot of people who are saying, fine, they spoke up. What else do you want? I want them to use that platform and understand the benefit they have by coaching these young African-American men that they don't have a choice about whether to take a stand on these issues. If you're going to coach those kids, these are your issues too. And if they're not, we're going to continue to ask these questions and hold you accountable. One thing I've been thinking about, Myron, gets back to what you were saying about the promises that coaches make around being responsible for these young men, the promises that they make and to the kids' parents, you know, and, and these recruiting visits. It's a very intimate kind of moment, right? You go into somebody's house and you are trying to convince them to come to your school and you're saying, I'll take care of you. I'll be the leader. I'll be the mentor. You're making promise, um, a kind of a, a vow. And it feels, I think, to a lot of us, like that's all kind of stagecraft, that um, there's some kind of artifice and, and fakery to it. And that when it actually comes time for these young men to get to campus, it's all feels very kind of like they're being used and that promise isn't being fulfilled, whether it's around, oh, we're going to make sure this kid gets an education, but um, you have to take, um, you know, a general studies major because you don't have time to actually like go to these these classes. And so like, yeah, you sh- we, ro- we want you to get this very specific type of education that maybe won't leave you fully educated when you leave. That's that's just one example. But, you know, I've, I've been doing a lot of research and reading around David Duke because that's the topic for season four of Slow Burn. And a thing that struck me as being like so remarkable and telling is that when Duke was running for governor in 91, there were ads that went out right before election day that said, you have to vote against Duke because if he wins, that's going to hurt LSU in recruiting, mm. that black students are not going to want to go there. And just seeing black athletes in this totally you know, mechanistic kind of way, like we need to make sure that we don't do this thing because then black athletes who we need for our team to do well will not want to be here. And so it's a long way around to saying, you know, the cynical way to look at it is like th- maybe these coaches are just saying the bare minimum right thing so the black athletes won't want to go to another school. Are you suggesting that Power Five coaches only care about recruiting? <laughs> that, that's never happened. That's never happened. Oh, oh, they're 100%. All, they're all salesmen and they're, se- they're, they're selling us that they're being sincere about George Floyd's death, right? A hundred percent these statements and if you look at the time frame, there were certainly some people who relayed statements earlier in the week. But we're talking about the last 72 hours when now you've got to make a statement. Because if you don't, someone's going to say, why didn't you put something out? It's always about recruiting. Like, I, I never expect much more than that. Like, you're, you're in a position like that at a Power 5 school because you have been obsessed with winning and doing whatever it takes to win. And to be the head coach of a program like that, that's who you are. It's always recruiting. And certainly these statements are a message to Black athletes who are there now and who could come in the future. But I just don't think that's sufficient for those young men. And at some point, we as reporters have to do a better job, I think, of holding these coaches accountable and not just when these situations arise. I mean, to me, we've talked about George Floyd for a week. Mm-hmm. 
And there are a lot of people who are already exhausted. They're mm-hmm. already tired of talking about it. Racism is every day for us. It's forever. Right. So we shouldn't allow, I think, these coaches to get away with not having real discussions, public discussions, even when things like the George Floyd encounter aren't happening. Like this has to be something that is a part of what they do and part of their platform. If they truly have an investment in these young black men who are black men and you can't escape that. But I think something else you said is important. This is also happening around the name, image, and likeness stuff. This is also happening where you've got programs trying to sell the value of going to a particular institution. How much money these kids are going to be able to make on the side if they go to this school or that school. So recruiting is about to get even more complicated. And that's certainly a part of, I think, what we're seeing right now. Joel, I want to ask you, you've also covered college sports, of course, also. And sort of piggybacking off of what Josh and Myron just said, you know, these coaches have to be aware. I mean, Nick Saban's aware that as we've just been talking about that social media has made the lives of athletes different. They are more plugged in. There is a broader and easier conversation for them to have. And everything that they experience is now shared and it's visible. Can coaches continue to get away with, you know, I'm deeply troubled by what I saw. Um, Or as Myron just said, you know, does this have to become part of the, the, the recruiting platform? It's got to become part of their mission statement or however they, they phrase, frame the, the way they reach out to the students that they're trying to get to come play sports for them. Um, I'm fairly cynical about this sort of stuff. I don't think they have to do anything. I just think they kind of have to ride this out until the news cycle changes. And we'll, You think, man, though? I mean, yeah. th- isn't it possible that some young athlete, top athlete's going to say, why should I go play for this guy? Look at this bullshit. I mean, if I read it on Twitter. If they make a bad statement, uh, or if they made a statement, or if they said something that would reveal that they didn't see a problem with George Floyd being killed in that manner at all, that would be a problem. But I, I you know... There's so many elements that go into a college athlete's decision to go someplace that very rarely do the politics of the coach come into play. Because if it did, then you probably wouldn't see so many guys have the success in recruiting, let alone the schools. You know what I mean? Like Ole Miss would never get anybody if this would, (laughs) right? Right. If if, if that sort of stuff mattered. So um, I just think that for the most part, what schools are doing, and as Myron's seen in these statements, they're just kind of making a very, you know, a very sort of soft statement, just saying, we're with you guys, we're against racism, and they can just kind of wait it out, and, you know, in a, in a couple of weeks, the news cycle will change, you know, maybe there'll be, a, God forbid, a, a second wave of COVID, there'll be some sort of, you know, we're in the middle of a presidential election, the news cycle will change and we'll move on. And that's exactly, that's exactly what happened after Ferguson and Baltimore, you know, eventually people move on. And I don't think, you know, teenagers or their parents or coaches or anybody are going to hold that against somebody for saying, for not saying enough. And, and, and that's sort of your take on it, Myron? Yeah, I think everything I'm saying is, what I would hope to see, uh, which you would think they would feel morally obligated to do, but I, I'm in the cynical boat too in terms of these statements will be sufficient for 99% of the coaches uh, and we will move on. I'm very curious, Joel, and I wonder what you think about this. If this happens in mid-September mm. and now you've got athletes who are saying, mm. I'm taking this to the field. I'm taking this to the basketball court. I'm going to make a, a visible showing of how I feel on this big stage, how many of these statements do we see? How many of these, how much support do we see? Because I think that would be a completely different conversation for a lot of these coaches. Because right now you could say, hey, I support you. Seth Towns, the kid at uh, Ohio State, the young man at Ohio State who protested uh, and was detained by police uh, on Friday. Gene Smith, athletic director at Ohio State comes out and says, I support you. Chris Holtman, his coach, says, I support you. And I believe that, but it's also June 1st, right? Right. Does that support for all of these coaches and athletic directors carry over into the season if these same young men come out and say, you know what? I need to do something on the field Mm -hmm. to prove that I care. Do you support me then? 
Man. I'm very curious about the responses that we'll get. That would be amazing because the, the timing is everything, right? And I just think about, you know, it was it 2016 or 17 when Mizzou's football program was brought to yeah. a halt. Like that's how like Gary Pinkle resigned as a result of those those protests, right? That were happening on campus that were around, you know, very specific uh issues of racism and discrimination within that campus, right? But they brought that program, a Power Five program, a program that had played in the SEC championship, you know, in the previous two years to a halt. So, yeah, I mean, I definitely think, right, like if 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 this comes back around or there's another incident that sort of captivates the nation in the same way, then, yeah, I mean, now that would be really thrilling to me. Like, I don't want anything to happen. Obviously, you know, it goes without yeah. saying that I don't want anybody to, 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 to lose their life in that way. But a, a similar sort of issue, a similar sort of controversy in the middle of the season. Oh, well, then it's going to be on and popping. Then you know what I mean. Like, I, then, 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 then we'll have. Then they'll really have to do something. Yeah. Well, the the thing that I'm wondering about as a possible kind of pathway for things to change would be the name and name, image, and likeness situation. Because you know, we'll see how that all shakes out. There are different ideas flying around, but let's just imagine or stipulate that players will get some um, um, amount more empowered than they are now, some amount more security, some amount more uh, ability to capitalize on, um, you know, the, um, the fame and renown that they, that they generate. Okay, will that be enough to, you know, you know, Kane Coulter at Northwestern starts this movement to unionize at that school? Doesn't really spread beyond Northwestern. Shabazz Napier, um, talks very publicly at a, a huge moment at the final four about, you know, how he sometimes doesn't have enough to eat. Seth Towns protests after George Floyd's death. Could we see sort of exponential growth in the number of players and prominent players who feel like they have the platform and the safety um, to be able to speak out? That seems to me like it's possible. I don't know if it will happen, but if something change changes, I bet it's because the athletes themselves feel like they are empowered to speak up like pro athletes have been able to. Yeah. I'm extremely cynical on that idea only because <laughs> when it comes to name, image, and likeness, first off, we don't know what that's going to look like. And anytime the NCAA is talking about fair market value, I have no idea what that means. How much was Zion worth two years ago? I mean, if Nike had come to Zion at Duke that year and said, Here's $20 million because you're the biggest thing in sports right now. Is that fair market value? So I don't know what name, image, and likeness rules will even look like, but they'll continue to benefit the stars. I mean, they'll benefit your most popular players. So those guys are already, I mean, those men and women on you know women's teams as well, they already have prominent positions. So whether they speak up without name, image, and likeness or with it, they have a lot of security in that you're not getting rid of your superstar. You know, you're, you're going to listen to them and you're going to give them certain freedom. So I, I don't know if that really changes sort of the audacity that, that some of that athletes might have. I think to me, they'll change each other. I mean, that's your best hope in that. I think social media ha- has just made it trendy for a lot of these young folks to get involved and to express their views. And they can all do it so easily. You know, Seth Towns at Ohio State, you know, Puts the video on Twitter of him getting detained by police and handcuffed. Uh, he puts his statement on Twitter, and there are thousands of people sharing this moment. He didn't need me. He, he, he didn't need some other group to, to help him put out this statement. He did it on his own. So I think that, to me, if they're going to be more bold, it's because they have a better opportunity to say things without the filters around them. So will they fight the filters? That's my question. Will they say something if the coach says, don't protest? Will they say something if the athletic director says, we don't want to talk about this issue? I'm very curious to see how that all plays out. I do think it's going to be harder for white coaches and athletic directors to try to clamp down in the fall Mm -hmm. if the sports come back and if there's still this tension out there, which of course there will be. Um, so my hope is that, yeah, there is some power in the collective here and the collective force of what's happened over the last few weeks and what's going to continue to happen through this summer. And that athletes will recognize that suddenly, you know, they're going to see that, oh, Kaepernick was right. And that, 
you know, we've seen cops, whether cynically or not, taking knees in the last few days. And suddenly certain forms of expression that were third rails are more validated. And if the students are bold enough and, you know, and this, these are huge ifs and can overcome the, the inherent uh, stack deck against them, scholarships, control over their lives, control over their futures, you know, that would be obviously a very positive thing to see. Yeah. It would be positive. I would say quickly, I feel like this is going to be the most insecure class of athletes we've ever had because hmm. athletic departments are shrinking, uh, scholarships yep. are being minimized. So I think actually there will be more fear of speaking out because everybody's not going to make it. Every team's not going to even be uh, still in play this fall. So I just wonder how we all navigate that. All right. Well, I think we can put a pin in the conversation here. I'm sure this is going to come back around at some point. And when it does, we want to have you back on, Myron. But in the meantime, thank you. Uh, Stay safe up there, bro. And we'll uh, be looking forward and following you going forward. Appreciate you, man. Thank you all. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black students athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when you did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Now it is time for Afterballs, and uh, Professor Lou Moore, who we've had on this show before, put together a map, the history of Black athletes and police brutality. We'll link to it on our show page, and I suggest that folks check it out. And the uh, examples, which are all illustrated by uh, news stories, so you can read more um, about these particular incidents, Go back to 1903. Um, The first athlete is uh, a boxer named Joe Gans. And the headline of the story is this little squib is Joe Gans fined. It says, Joe Gans colored, the champion lightweight boxer of the world, was fined $5 in costs by Justice Rabb at the Northeastern Police Station yesterday morning on the charge of acting in a disorderly manner. Um, The story goes on to describe a conflict between Gans and two um, folks that he was with, both black um, and a patrolman. Um, The patrolman came up to them and told them they were creating too much noise. Um, The officer resented uh, the remark from one of them and threatened to place them under arrest. There's then a scuffle where the policeman was hit. Uh, on the ear. And then it says, Gans made a dive for the patrolman who in turn struck him in the head with his club, knocking him in the street. Um, It was Gans, the boxer who was fined for this, um, as I said in the beginning, $5. Um, And if you want to look at the uh, long and sad and sadly unsurprising history of police brutality and black athletes, then um, there are a lot more examples like this on Lou Moore's map. Um, so Joe Gans is the afterball name today. Uh, Joel, what is your Joe Gans? I was reading through the Houston Chronicle over the weekend, trying to learn as much about George Floyd as possible. Um, in one of these stories about Floyd in his early life in his hometown of Houston, uh, the current coach at his alma mater said, I don't know a lot about his adult background, but I've heard nothing but good things. He was always smiling every time I saw him. So if, like me, you'd never heard of George Floyd before last week, this afterball is for you. But it's not about his gruesome death that was caught in that now viral video in Minneapolis last Monday. While so much time has been spent, and rightfully so, recounting Floyd's final awful minutes at the hands and knees of police, I was hungry for more information about his life. 
And former NBA player Steven Jackson, as we mentioned in an earlier segment, was one of the first to help with that. Uh, Jackson is from Southeast Texas, Port Arthur, which is about an hour and a half outside of Houston. And he quickly and repeatedly explained that he had a personal connection to Floyd. He called Floyd twin. And if you see Steven Jackson and if you've seen a picture of George Floyd, it makes sense. They legitimately look like brothers. And so that was all how I found out Floyd was six foot six and from Houston, Texas. And it didn't take long for me to sort of fill in the rest of the story. He was raised in the city's historic Third Ward neighborhood. He went to Yates High School and he went off to college briefly on a basketball scholarship. And so the most interesting data point in there to me as a Houstonian is that Floyd was a member of Yates' 1992 football team that went 13-2-1 and lost in the Class 5A state final. If you're from Third Ward or the south side of Houston like me, that school and that team still means something special today. Fans of Friday Night Lights, the book, and not the TV show that I've never seen in the movie, might remember a passing reference to Yates' 1985 championship team. That team defeated Odessa Permian 37 to nothing in the title game. It was the first all-Black team to win a state championship in Texas. And Floyd became a part of that tradition when he joined the football team in the 90s, when Yates was still a local and state powerhouse. He was a tight end on the team in 1992. That team was led by Gerald Moore, who that year became the first HISD player to rush for more than 2,000 yards in a single season before going on to star at Oklahoma. And this was high school football in Texas in the 90s, so there wasn't a lot of passing going on. But Floyd still managed to stand out as a tight end. In that state championship game that I mentioned earlier that was played in the old Houston Astrodome, Floyd caught three passes for 18 yards and a 38-20 loss to Temple High School. So... Yates lost, but if you're from Houston like me, that team is as memorable as any other team that ever won a state championship. And Floyd even ended the year by making it onto the local all-star team. Here's a line from that story. Running backs, Gerald Moore and Johnny Bailey, linebackers, Oscar Smallwood and Melvin Foster, and tight ends, Floyd George. So they got the names backwards there, right? It's George Floyd, but they said, and tight ends, Floyd George and Zeno Alexander. Names the football followers of Yates certainly know well, as do the college recruiters. So they didn't quite know Floyd or his name as well as they claimed to, but he nonetheless made a name for himself. Yates' football coach, Maurice McGowan, remembered Floyd as more of a basketball player who was convinced to play football. The coaches had to beg him to come out to play football. He felt most at home on the basketball court. In fact, one of his teammates said of him, he was fluid. You know how some people make awkward moves? Well, he knew how to handle the rock and to get to his spots and get where he wanted to go. Floyd did well enough to go on to play basketball at South Florida Community College, but he didn't finish. He came back home to Houston and got connected with the legendary screwed-up clique that was led by, you know, the iconic Houston musician DJ Screw. And I assume what's going to happen here is this is the first time we've ever played a clip of a screw tape on Hang Up and Listen. Watch me lay low, never coming high. I'm a real D, stay high till I die. D-I-E, Watch me raise up in my drop top C. That's Floyd. That's Big Floyd. I didn't know that. I've heard these songs for much of my childhood and did not realize that Floyd was actually part of a music scene that made Houston, you know, one of the more important scenes in rap music in the 90s. So anyway, Floyd got into rap, you know, but after that, the reports on his life got a lot more spotty and sporadic. We know that he had two daughters. We know that he spent a little time in jail. We know that he recently had moved to Minneapolis looking for a new start at life. We also know that he was only 46 years old at the time of his death. Floyd wasn't an extraordinary guy, but he was part of something special once. And that's something we should all be able to relate to, especially if you've heard me talk about my year quarterbacking the 1989 Southwest Steers to an undefeated season. He was just a regular guy. He was a human being, as Josh said earlier. And that makes his death hit even closer to home. Rest in peace, Big Floyd. Thank you, Joel. And that is our show for today. Our producer is... Melissa Kaplan, to listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. If you're still here and you want even more hang up and listen, we have a bonus segment for you this week with ESPN's Myron Medcalf, who 
Um, he's been living in Minnesota for a long time and gave us his perspective on what's been going on there for the last week. When I saw the video on Monday, Memorial Day, I knew right then and there. And here was my thought. This is what would have happened if Philando had happened in Minneapolis. Philando Castile died in police custody, was shot by a police officer, but it was in sort of a little suburb outside Minneapolis. It wasn't Minneapolis police. Had Philando happened in Minneapolis, this would have been the result. To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. For Joel Anderson, Stephanie Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine, members on Beatty, and thanks for listening. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.